Welcome to Stallside Podcast. Are we rolling? <laughs> How's it going, Bob? Here, here we are. Here we are. It, it's good. It's good to be back in town. The winter's setting in. It's uh, it's cold. Um, I hate winter. Well, I mean, you know, if you don't have winter, you can't have spring. That's true. That's it's true. Like let's let's every, get on with it. Let's get it every life, a little rain must fall. <laughs> that's right. It's always I, darkest. I suppose. It's always darkest in the middle of the night. Yeah, that is. That's true. It could always also be darkest before it goes pitch black. Is always that as well. <laughs> you, you lost me back there, ways, but uh, it's good to be here, and I'm alive, and I'm I'm warm in here, and it's uh, yeah, well, you know, some fun stuff. So yeah, you know, we just we, we wanted to talk a little bit about our experience at the AAP. So why don't you explain the AAP convention just a little bit? Maybe we even talk about the the organization just a tick. Yeah, we can. Yeah. So the American Association of Equine Practitioners is a uh, sort of professional organization of equine veterinarians, not only in the United States, but around the world. And you just share a common interest in all things horse. And so every year you have a conference and you get together and uh, people present, you know, new ideas, techniques, um, some scientific work. And really, it's just a good opportunity for everybody to get together and talk. And that's really been missing the last few years with covid has actually taken that out, and for me, you, you see some great stuff at the meeting, but it's a uh, it's a networking with people that do similar things to what you do, and you just sort of say, hey, you know, how did you solve this problem, or you know, what's new for you? Are you seeing this as well? And so, really, the the non scheduled educational moments right. are actually to me the yep. most important. Yep, yep. The people that you see, and there's some really, really smart people that are working on some difficult problems out there. And one thing I love about the veterinary community is the willingness to share. Yeah, um, people people find stuff, they solve stuff, and it's it's about making um, horses' lives and veterinarians' lives and their owners' lives better. Yeah. So so it all comes back together. So it's 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 fun. It's a good time and. Uh, you know, people get a little loose out there, and yeah, yeah, everybody has a good time. Like some people actually start wearing cowboy hats. Which is now, yeah, I, I didn't bring up the cowboy hat, but if you're if you're not watching, uh, Doctor Morrissey is, uh, yeah, he's he's well, channeling his cowboy today. Well, and what you can't see is the other side of the table where he's wearing nothing but his shaps, and you know we need to talk that through just a little bit. But stay sitting, stay yeah, sitting. stay sitting. Nobody wants to see that, but nobody wants to see that <laughs> at all. But yeah, you know you've got to immerse yourself. You've got to embrace it. So you're going to Nashville. I've never been to Nashville before, and it says okay, well you know I'm going to go full metal Nashville. Number of people walked past me and didn't recognize me. Bill Rude, including me, including you, on the stairs. You didn't recognize didn't. me. Bill Rude didn't recognize me. He walked straight past me. He said hi to the uh, former intern I was talking to. Just looked straight at me and straight through me. <laughs> Because of the hat. You became invisible with the hat. Yeah, it was like being back in Lexington again. Just looked straight through me, kept going. <laughs> My mother didn't That's recognize awesome. me. I sent her a picture because yeah. I had a picture taken of me with um, Travis, you know, Travis Toll. Sure. And I said, hey, here's me with my friend, you know, Travis, you know, in the bar sort of thing like this. And I had the, the, the shirt on, which I couldn't really put on video today because it would have melted the camera. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the hat. And sure. my mother says back to me, she says, which one are you? Really? Yeah. Wow. I'm not kidding you. Yeah. She says, oh, the photo was a bit stark. Which one are you? So, I mean, even my own mother didn't recognize me. That's awesome. It period, periodically, she's just owned me, but not recognizing me. That's what really hurt. <laughs> well, yeah. they could be the same thing. Yeah, they probably end up being the same thing. But so, you're getting back to the AAP. Yeah, so we, we wanted to go serious. through some of the things that we learned out yes. there this year. And, um, you know, it's, it probably bring that back and uh, summarize this just a little bit for yeah. people if we could. 
Yeah, so this would be a good time to actually show some slides of some of the papers I saw. So there, there was a lot of business stuff talked about. At it, the was, meeting. it was. It was good. Yeah, and one of the big crises I don't think people realize that's occurring in equine medicine is getting people into the industry and retaining them. And there's a number of reasons for that. And this was a really good um, talk that I went to about that. And I just sort of show you a few graphs here, which are actually really sobering. So if we look at the top there from 2001 down to 2020, it's really plummeted the number of... Um, New veterinarians entering equine practice. I mean, it, new graduates. It's, uh, it's like five to one now, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, it peaked at about 6% in 2003, and it's been yeah. on a steady decline now, and it's less than 2%. So that makes it a little bit hard, because when you look at the profession demographically at the moment, there's a lot of people that are coming to the end of their career, and they're looking to actually move out of practice or transition right. out of practice and actually hand the the business and their knowledge on to other people and the people just aren't there. And part of that is I think the profession hasn't done a very good job of sort of saying, hey, this is a great career, you get to do crazy things and, and yep. meet crazy people, as you can attest to. You're Absolutely. sitting alongside one. Um, but when you actually look at the debt-to-income ratio, um, this is the graph down here on the bottom left, it's actually pretty sobering because that has just been on a steady increase. And this is actually much higher than the average of AVMA graduates when you compare to small animal graduates. Mm -hmm. The debt to income um, is much lower for them. And so that's problematic. If you're owing like three times you know, what your income is, it's hard to get ahead of that debt. And I think that's something that we all need to be very cognizant of and do things about. And one of the things that came through uh, with... Um, uh, veterinarians and one of the problems they have with their uh, employment is how much on-call emergency duty they do. And when you look at the graph here on the bottom right, you can sort of see that almost a third of veterinarians are doing somewhere between a quarter and a 50% on-call. And that's actually a lot. So not only do you work a full day, you're actually working one and two or one and four nights as well, and then it probably extends to weekends. And a quarter of veterinarians are actually doing 100% on-call. If they're a solo practitioner and they don't have any means of um, sharing that load, that's 100% on call. And I don't think everybody realises how stressful that is. And we've gone into that a little bit with one of our other speakers about how stressful this is. I think a number of us have also mentioned as well, you know, when we've interviewed other members of the practice, is that it's a fair on-call commitment, um, especially early in your career. And it's, it's a little bit of a disincentive because people, I think, look at work a little bit differently now. It's part of their life. It's not their life. I think that's taking a little bit of getting um, used to. But I know you spent a little bit of time in the business talks as well. Yeah, I, d I did. You know, one of the things that happened in one of our meetings the other day was somebody said, do you know that almost all of our interns take their phone into the shower with them? And I go, yeah, don't you? And all, everybody, yeah. in that, in, everybody in that room did. And so that was a little bit of a, a wake up that, you know, gosh, we're, we're just married to these phones because we are on, on call so much. Um, when you talk about veterinarians and solo practices, you know that 52% of our equine practices are either one or two man practices. So those, those folks, you know, unless they're doing some on call sharing with other practices, which is, which is being done more and more, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're on, just like you said, you're on all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, these, these students who are graduating with debt, their average is six figure. Yep. They've got six figures of, of debt. Um, you know, in our equine practices, um, we're, we're not, we're not paying as much as the small animal practices. So the, the other number that was a little bit startling was of those people that are coming into equine practice. And you talked a little bit about how few there are coming into equine practice. Half of them are gone within five years. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're either, you know, some of them are actually choosing different fields, but a lot of them are going into small animal companion medicine where it pays a little bit better, 
Ours are a lot better. So we've got some things to work on as a group, you know, as, as equine veterinarians, because the other number that was somewhat startling. So right now there for every veterinarian that comes into equine practice, three are retiring. So that, that's a number that's a little bit scary too. So we need to do a better job and we're feeling it right. Our, our intern applicants are lower than they used to be. Um, but we don't feel as bad as a lot of the other parts of the country where they're really struggling to find veterinarians. You know, so a, a lot of that has to do with, with pay, but a lot of it has to do with, just like you talked about, emotional well-being. Because there was a study that was done that showed that a, a client's number one reason for choosing an equine veterinarian is their availability. Mm -hmm. What's the number one reason that veterinarians are leaving equine practice? Because they have to be available so much. So so we need to, so it's not a root and riddle problem. It's not just a, a Lexington problem. It's a, it's a problem in the industry where we need a paradigm shift where, hey, more than one person is very capable of taking care of that, that horse, you know, your, your, ab, your foot abscess or your colic or, or whatever it is, you know, because we do have very qualified people and we need to do a better job of, of sharing some of those duties. Yeah, I think veterinarians as a role, especially equine veterinarians, are sort of a little bit individualistic and they take a lot of ownership of the things that are put in front of them. And while it's good to have that responsibility and it's good to be wanted, ultimately it's going to be your undoing because sooner or later you just run out of gas. And you either um, you know, spare the gas that you have so you drive along a little bit longer, you keep your foot on the floor and burn out quickly, and then you're left on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the other things that's, that's happened in veterinary medicine, you know, 85% of the graduates are female. And so there's, there's some other priorities and responsibilities that come along with that. It's, it's great that we have women in equine practice. Um, you know, and, and I think we've hit the number now where 50% of equine veterinarians are, are female and 50% are male. So, and that used to be a, a profession that was very dominated by, by men and not so much anymore. And I think that's a great thing, Bart, because it's really good that the profession is finally reflecting society a little bit more accurately. Sure, ab absolutely, and and my point was we've just we've got some things to amend as as a group of veterinarians, but but also it's going to take um, so, you know our clients are going to have to to bend a little bit too, and I I think be a little bit more forgiving when the person that they are used to seeing is uh, taking care of some personal things. Yeah, absolutely, that's right. Because ultimately, you know, they should want that relationship to last as long as possible, and it's going to last as long as possible if people get time to actually live as well. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's talk about some of the medical stuff that went on. Um, there was a great talk about um, equine protozoal myeloencephalitis, and because that's just a scourge of horses. Yep. And this study comes out of California, uh, and it was very interesting in that everybody's looking for a preventative. Like a few years ago, there was a vaccine for EPM, right. and that never really took no. off. But this is really good information because there's a product on the market called Diclasurol, and that's actually a treatment. But when actually used at half the label dose twice a week, it actually was shown in the study to be a pretty good preventative. And uh, when you looked at it, uh, the levels that were actually left in the horse, the trough levels of this drug, were actually sufficient to stop um, multiplication 
of the S neurona, the infectious agent. And so this is actually really good information. Now, people have been trying various combinations of the treatments at various doses for a long time, but this is the first study that's been out there to sort of say, yes, you can use a product already on the market that's been approved at half the label dose twice a week, and you will actually maintain levels which should be preventative for infection. So that's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, that is good news. Yeah, that is good news. Finally, some good news on EPM. Right, because and, and because treatment has been so expensive. Yeah, and that's that's been the problem. And yeah, and even if and you, it's devastating. Yeah, and even if you treat the horse, there's no guarantee it's going to come back and it's not going to relapse. Right, and it's it's you can't avoid it. Like the possum's out on the pasture, it's getting into the feed in the yep. barn, and that's what your horse is exposed to. So right. this, good news. There was good news. Good news. Um, speaking about um, not so good news is a condition named Salmonella, and that's of course the scourge of many hospitals. Uh, both private and uh, university. And this was a great little um, study which confirmed a few things which people had already thought about um, salmonella shedding amongst horses in a hospital situation. And the upshot of that really was that the horses that are most likely to shed salmonella, they ran high fevers, um, they had increased lactate. This lactate, that's something we measure in the blood. And when it's elevated, that's usually a marker of some metabolic problem or perhaps the horse is a little bit dehydrated. Um, neutropenia, like a low white cell count, yep. was also associated with it. And that was the horses that actually arrived into the hospitals so and had a fever, increased lactate, and low white cell count. They were much more likely to be shedding salmonella. What was really interesting was horses within the hospital, if they refluxed, right, if they had to actually pass a tube and reflux these horses because they had trouble with some upper GI motility, those horses were 10 times more likely to shed salmonella versus a horse that wasn't refluxing. Really? And that's something that people have talked about for a while, mm-hmm. but this actually was proven to be in the study quite the factor. And so that was pretty interesting because you have horses come in, they colic, perhaps they have surgery for some reason, they start to reflux. So it's 10 times more likely to have salmonella. So that helps us all a little bit when we're yep. managing these in the hospital. Yep. So why is it, you know, because I, I think it's important for people to know, salmo- we, we could coexist with salmonella, right? Yep. Not every salmonella that you see is, is necessarily a bad thing because it lives in your gut all the time. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like it's, it's, not a, it's not a normal gut inhabitant, but it's a common gut inhabitant, right? Like it's just everywhere. And so depending on the study, anywhere between like a half and 8% of horses are shedding salmonella at any time, depending on the stress level they're in and the environment they're in. And those are pretty big numbers. And it's kept in check by an otherwise normal flora, right? I mean, all all it takes for, you know, badness to happen is good men to do nothing, right? And so if you've got a normal flora in your colon, it keeps the bad guys at bay, right? If you disturb that through withholding feed, transport, um, some other infectious agent, antibacterial usage, it's possible to disturb the normal flora and allow the salmonella to multiply and cause a problem. They didn't come from nowhere. Right. They were there the whole time. It's just that by fair means or foul, they were given the opportunity to actually multiply and then you get a clinical case. So it's disappointing when that happens. Yes. But it's just a factor of dealing with horses. It's just in their colon. And speaking about interesting things, um, CBD... We're not talking central business district. <laughs> but uh, this is pretty interesting as Charlie well. Charlie Daniels, man. No, that's CDB. Yes, CDB. Yes. Uh, but the, um, the, the herbals, so to speak, yeah. um, popular in some states. more. So I get a lot of time. questions about them. Yeah, and um, it's rather interesting that we should because the interesting thing is is that regardless of your um, sort of view of the recreational use of yeah. these um, compounds, they actually have some therapeutic uses because there's actually receptors in the body for these compounds and there was one study done here where they're actually looking at a couple of different doses of these products in horses to see if they actually got levels within the synovial fluid. 
And it looks like they actually did. And they were detectable, you know, for some time. Now, this didn't really establish like a therapeutic dose. Like say you Mm -hmm. had a horse that had degenerative disease, had some inflammation, had some pain. But it just sort of says that if we feed this, we can actually get detectable levels in the synovium and it seemed to be safe. Therefore, perhaps we can actually use these things therapeutically because it seems to be that there are receptors for these and maybe they can be used in a therapeutic fashion. So... Um, That's good because I, I think there's there's going to be a place for it, right? We just need to figure out what it is, what it's best for, or what it's best in combination yep. with to uh, to help us in some of our treatment regimes, right? Yeah. It's, it's not a be-all, end-all by any means. No, absolutely not. And we struggle a bit in some of these horses. I know we've had other um, guests on the show that have talked about like laminitis and various yeah. other sorts of pain. And sometimes non-steroidals aren't enough. Sometimes opiates aren't enough. You know, Sometimes things like ketamine aren't enough. And this may be something else we can add it on top. As part of a multimodal pain control to actually get a little bit better um, welfare for our patients while we're trying to achieve our therapeutic goals. And so I'm excited at the prospect, but it's sort of been a little bit um, anecdotal up to this point. Mm-hmm. But it was nice to see that there's actually some um, well-conducted research coming out that may actually allow these things to find a place therapeutically um, in um, you know routine equine practice. Yep. Okay. So moving on a little bit, um, talk about performance horses. There was a large session on performance horses and deciding which heart murmurs were actually relevant. And that is actually pretty interesting because you get a number of horses that are presented to you. Maybe it was an incidental finding during a purchase exam. Sometimes I have a horse come into me in the hospital here and I'm looking at something else, but as a matter of course, before you sedate the horse, you listen to it and all of a sudden you hear a murmur or you hear hear an arrhythmia. And this was a really good presentation by Dr. Mitchell uh, from Cornell. And uh, she actually went into uh, a number of the things which we all should be concerned about, talked about how to detect these murmurs, how to characterise um, where they were in the cardiac cycle and which ones were sort of important, which ones weren't. And she had a, a really good summary, really. And uh, she says, for most cases, um, the common murmurs are actually well tolerated. And that's usually like a valvular regurgitation, right? You have tricuspid regurgitation, bicuspid, something like that. It's usually well tolerated. And even though the horse has a cardiac issue, it's probably going to have decent normal exercise tolerance probably going to perform okay and probably have a decent life expectancy too potentially normal and it potentially would pass for for some other reason but you've got to keep looking at these horses as a whole and just sort of say are there any of these issues in these horses that we need to be worried about is there a performance issue Um, does a horse have periods of collapse and so just because the murmur seems to be fairly routine while the great majority be well tolerated you don't want to take your eye off the ball but there's one category of murmurs, and that's sort of um, called diastolic. And you have systolic and diastolic. And systole is when the heart contracts and the, bump plump, uh, the blood pumps around the body. And diastole is when the heart's filling again when the blood comes back before it initiates another cycle. So murmurs that occur during diastole are a little bit more important because the, uh, the one is called H, um, aortic regurgitation. And sometimes these horses with aortic, aortic regurgitation, they actually have some pulse deficits as well. But they can actually do some bad things. And so it really comes down to categorizing when in the cardiac cycle the murmur occurs, potentially which structures are actually involved, and then making a decision there. But it was a really good presentation. Mm. And so for any, anybody out there that's listening of a veterinary persuasion that accesses this in the AEP proceedings, I think they will actually get great value from that presentation. So moving on 
from medical things, we can talk about a few things reproductive. I know you've uh, seen more than one mare in your time. I've dabbled. You've yeah, dabbled. Dabbled. You've dabbled very successfully. So there's a lot of things that get put in a mare's uterus, and one thing is um, acetylcysteine. Yeah. And uh, this was a really good uh, study that was actually done by our uh, friends and colleagues around the corner um, at the um, Haggard Equine Medical Institute, and the. Uh, Study here actually looked at the diagnosis of bacterial endometritis in barren mares. And this was actually really good because sometimes you just can't culture something, even though you know there right. has to be an infection there. And so a lot of things have been done with acetylcysteine up to this point, but this is a nice little study because they actually looked at mares before and after and actually quantified some results. And so they're... Um, their discussion was actually pretty good. And so they really came to the conclusion that putting the acetylcysteine in there um, actually really helped culture and cytology confirm that there was actually an infection there. And when you get bacterial cultures in the uterus, sometimes they uh, form what's called biofilm. Yep. And I mean, that's a word that's been bandied around a lot in the veterinary profession. But basically with the biofilm, the bacteria, they form a little structured colony form a slime layer over the top and this is you know an, an exercise in actually coexisting and um, looking after each other and working together which we could all take a bit of um, a, b a bit of information from I mean bacteria have got it right why can't we so they sit there and they put the slime layer over the top and they come very protected from not only detection but also they're protected from treatment and also bacteria can go into a state a state where they're actually sort of a little bit dormant and when they're not actively dividing, it's very difficult for a lot of the drugs we use to kill them to actually have an effect because the bacteria is not turning over and metabolically it's not so active and the drugs we use can't work. So putting the acetylcysteine in there was actually um, very beneficial because what it did was it actually disrupted that mucus slime layer that's over the top of the bacteria and made those organisms available to actually be detected and to actually be cultured. Another thing they did with the study, which was really brilliant, was they actually looked at the uh, lavage fluid itself and they looked at it objectively to see how opaque it was and they put it through a densimeter, which is uh, a little machine that a lot of practices have They can actually measure semen um, concentration with. So you popped the reflux fluid from the mare's lavage mm -hmm. in there and it was actually proportional to the amount of bacteria you got. So that was actually really good because you could not necessarily, depending on where you're practicing, you could not have access to a lab that can quantify this for you. But if you have the fluid, you can actually pop it in a densimeter and it can give you a pretty good idea of what your bacterial load is in that uterus. So, I mean, I think that was really good um, information because this is the sort of stuff I really like. Stuff yeah. that can be done practically in the field yep. by the tools that are out there and give you a relatively advanced diagnostic no, information. No, that is good because when you culture mares, we're just, you're popping that swab just through the cervix and you're twirling around. So you are, you've got this vast area of, of, of uterus, but we're just, we're just putting a swab up just to, yeah. against a tiny bit of it. And so... And that sounds like a great way to get some better information. Yeah, and bacteria haven't got to where they are today by being easy to kill. Right. I mean, they just, you know, as soon as you zig, they zag. And this is one way they've actually hidden from detection. But this is a great way to actually make them more detectable. But also that lavage fluid is a great way to give you an idea of what your bacterial load is in there. So points to our friends around the corner for that one. Great. Okay. Um, if things go wrong with the mare, sometimes we've got to take the ovaries. And uh, then you've got a technique called oocyte recovery where you try to actually harvest some viable genetic material from the, the mayor um, who has, um, has passed. There's a nice little study here when they actually did a retrospective 
on um, doing that. And this was actually really good information because they had 168 sets of ovaries and they got 1,524 oocytes. So that's actually pretty good. And of those, 41% um, matured. 40% of those cleaved and 90% got to, 19% got to a blastocyst. And that was actually pretty good because you have this mare that's died, you've lost potential to breed her, but yep. to get the ovaries and you know with good technique and um, you could actually get that. And then one thing that was very important here was the temperature that the ovaries arrived from the deceased mare at the center where the oocytes were going to be harvested. And so that was something that veterinarians have to be really careful with, and they actually want to keep the temperature um, fairly steady on these ovaries. And it didn't matter how long they took to get to the lab, and it didn't really matter what semen was chosen to breed the re resulting um, oocytes. It was all down to what temperature those ovaries actually arrived at, which was pretty interesting. And so I think that puts the onus on veterinarians that harvest the ovaries to make sure that they're very particular in keeping them at the right temperature. So, again, this was a nice little study. So what, what is the right temperature? Between 15 and 25 degrees Celsius. So if you can keep these ovaries at that temperature range during transport, that gives them the best chance of uh, getting to where they need to be and getting the maximum chances. So 15 to 25. 15 to 25 degrees Celsius. So that's actually good, right? Yeah. I mean, so don't get them hot, don't freeze them, but you're just going to want to keep them at that temperature. Keep them, keep them steady. Um, did, did the age of the mare... Did, did they mention they that? Didn't, they didn't go into that in this study, but I think intuitively you tend to find, where yeah. I've been involved in this, your best candidate for this is a young, healthy mare that falls over and breaks her leg. Yep. Nobody wants to see that happen. No but she doesn't have any comorbidities or anything that would have suppressed her reproductive system. Because let's face it, reproduction is a bit of a luxury, right? It is, Everything it is else completely luxury, has yeah. to be right. But yep. so if you have like the aged mare, I mean, they don't have much of an ovarian reserve. They're probably born with like about 100,000. And far and away, the majority of these never get to the point where they actually mature, where they can be ovulated. So there's a massive rate of attrition before birth. There's a massive rate of attrition during life. So it's possible that some of these old mares actually run out. So your best candidate is a young, fit, healthy mare. Your poorest candidate is going to be your chronically devitalized aged mare. Yeah. Her ovarian reserve is less anyway. Plus, if she's like Cushingoid, she is like laminitis or something or some debilitating condition that's actually going to suppress the reproductive system, your chances of them aren't so good. I mean, you never say never. You always want to roll the dice. But... They're not going to be your best candidate, but I was really impressed by the no, numbers. No, that is that is here. impressive. Those are those are good because I, I think we didn't. I would have thought they were lower than that. Yeah. So it's it's good to know, and it's also good to know that you're not going to do this with a 25 year old mare that you haven't got a full out of for four or five years. Yeah, because um, there's another reason, yeah. and you know maybe you want to. You know what? I mean, if you want to, that's fine. But you do need to go right. into it with open eyes and realistic, and that she's not that fit, young, healthy mare that she was. Yeah. But you know. Um, Miss 100% of the shots you don't take. That's uh, right, you do. It no. works for mares, ovaries, and love. <laughs> okay, hepatitis. <laughs> uh, uh, there you go. That's the cowboy hat. The more shots I take, though, sometimes the more I miss. Yeah, that's true, too. Be selective in your shots. You be selective in your shots, yep. Okay, let's talk about uh, equine um, hepatitis viruses. This was a really nice little talk out of Cornell. Um in the last few years, we've become very aware of viral causes of hepatitis in horses. Classically, we sort of thought it was a toxicity, like it's a ragweed you know, and various other plants. Um, or they had like a, just a ascending bacterial cholangiohepatitis seeded from their gut. But viral causes have actually come to be quite um, well 
recognize cause of issues. So in the and in the screen here, we talk about the clinical signs of hepatitis. I mean, the classic one's going to be icterus, right? They're going to be jaundice. Things are going to look a little bit yellow. They can sometimes have pigmented urine. The urine can be um, a strong color. They may lose weight because, let's face it, your liver does everything, right? And if your liver's sick, you're sick. Right. Um, photosensitization, um, and then you may run into all manner of other things, colic, neurological problems from head pressing to blindness to seizure activity, and then potentially deaths. And so if you have problems with your liver with hepatitis, those are major problems. And again, classically it was thought that this was a toxicity issue. Well, in the last few years, there's a number of viruses that have actually been discovered, and one is the equine parvovirus. Now, there was a condition known as Tyler's disease that was um, named after um, a gentleman in the early 1900s because they'd given these horses um, an anti-serum for African horse sickness. And then within a certain, you know, a few weeks afterwards, these horses were dying of fulminant liver failure. They were having like encephalopathy. I mean, they were just sick, sick horses and dying. And they traced it back to an agent that was actually in the serum that was given to these horses. And by much observation and much intelligent work and uh, a lot of time, this parvovirus has been found to actually be the causative agent of that condition. There's another virus that's actually a bit of an issue, which is called equine hepasivirus, and that can actually cause anywhere from like mild acute hepatitis all the way to a chronic hepatitis. So if we have an issue where the horse has hepatitis, we don't have any plant cause, we can't really sort of seem to see whether there be any situation where a bacterial hepatitis may have started up. Once upon a time, we were stumped. We didn't have a cause. And within the last few years, and a lot of this good work came out of Cornell, we've actually got these two viruses now which we can test for, and it may not necessarily help us with our treatments, but it does really help us with prognosticating and giving these horses time to get over because the liver is remarkably resilient if you can create the right conditions by um, supportive care. I mean, some of them are not going to make it, especially with parvovirus. It can actually be really bad, but at least you actually have a name to it. Right. We, we can better understand it, and from that's actually going to come, hopefully, a specific treatment somewhere down the line. And, and the nice thing about that is because we were, we, we always have, well, we assumed it was something they ate, right? Yep. And so even though it was just one horse in the herd, then you had people chasing their tails looking at the feed sources, yep. right? We were looking at hay, we were looking at grain, we were looking Fungal at all kinds of things, all and, those and things. wondering when, when the next one is going to hit, but if we can identify this, yep. that's, that's great news. Yeah, it's good news. Not good news for the horse, but it's no, better, no, no, but better it's news for us. Because better news for us because we can we've got understand. A we yeah. can understand, yeah. Um, speaking about viral things, there was a nice talk um, out of California um, on coronavirus. Now, coronavirus is, of course, a very popular at the moment. And the equine coronavirus, that's been identified as a problem um, for a few years. And surprisingly, um, horses are potentially susceptible to the human coronavirus because they have a similar receptor, although there's never been any cases that have been documented. So just because they have the right receptor doesn't necessarily mean you have to have any concerns over your horse getting coronavirus. That was just a good point to make. Yeah. Um, but coronavirus, it can cause um, a few syndromes. It can be associated with respiratory disease, but some of these horses get some pretty significant gastrointestinal disturbances from this. I mean, they can stop eating, uh, they can become very lethargic, they can run fevers, and some of them actually progress to like upwards of 105 fever, which is very high, and they can get soft feces all the way to diarrhea, and some of them actually don't make it. 
And some of them actually have some liver issues with this virus as well, and it, it disturbs their bowel so much they end up with too much ammonia in their system, and they can actually have all sorts of like seizures, they can go blind, they can head press, and they, they can actually sort of die. So the majority of horses, they just run a fever, they have a little bit of malaise for a few days, but some of them actually progress to quite a nasty fulminant syndrome, which can either affect their bowel or actually affect the neurological system. So again, coronavirus is much better worked out than it used to be. doesn't tend to be, seem to be such a problem in um, the younger horses but definitely a problem this way in the older horses okay now a problem that has historically been seen as being majorly a kentucky problem although it's been reported all around the world now and, and in other states of this country is nocardiform placentitis and there was a great talk there um, on this uh, particular condition and it was a nice review and sort of you know, state of the art, where are we at the moment? And just for those of you that can actually um, see um, this on the YouTube channel, I have a graph here that's the number of cases that have been presented to the UK Diagnostic Lab. And there's been a couple of really big years, um, like 2011, 2017, 2020 recently. And the interesting thing about this is we've always sort of said there seems to be no rhyme or reason for this condition. They've tried to reproduce it experimentally. They put the organism into mares as they bred them to try to reproduce the condition and they just cannot do it. But one of the interesting things was that seemed to be associated with this was like a hot, dry summer, August or September, in all of those years I just mentioned, seemed to actually precede these outbreaks. So it's very puzzling. There's potentially some environmental factor that's involved in this, but it's the craziest condition. When and you and look it is because the other thing is it's not mares with poor reproductive conformation that are getting it. So you'd think maybe, well, maybe it's ascending, but, but it hits young mares, it, hit old, it's, yep. it hits old mares. Um, you know, some of the, one of the more encouraging things about it is their reproductive health after this mm -hmm. hits is, is just fine. They got in full at about the same rate yep. that their counterparts did. Before, so it doesn't. So you're gonna be able to breed them back. Yep. But you've some. You've either got a, a dead foal or you've got a compromised foal, small foal. Yeah. So, it, and and some really smart people are putting a lot of effort into this, and it's it's evasive. Yeah, it certainly is. And I, just for those of you that can actually see this on the YouTube channel, I've got some placentas here. <laughs> Um, that was actually an image taken from uh, from this paper. And there's a number of arid spots there. You can sort of see these plaques of this really thick, you know, people describe it as sort of like peanut butter, peanut butter consistency um, between the uh, placenta and the endometrium. And sometimes the area is small and sometimes the area is very extensive. And you're right, you can get anywhere from a foal that is born normally, delivered early, um, delivered underweight, all the way to an abortion. And so this is a really frustrating condition because if you can't reproduce a condition experimentally, you can't study it, and you're always looking over your shoulder. And so much uh, time and effort is invested in screening mares for this condition, like transabdominally with the ultrasound, because you're right, it's not descending placentitis right. where you'd actually just rectal the mare with the ultrasound. You've got to try to scan the abdomen. and This can be really hard to see, even though it's in a fairly predictable place most of the time it can be really really difficult to see it although when you do uh, for those of you that are actually on the youtube channel you can see here there's actually quite an area of detachment here i'm just running the uh, the mouse over the placenta and now actually the uterine wall and uh, the endometrium and you can see you see all this purulent material that's actually accumulated there and that's actually really concerning because a small area of detachment 
the fetus is going to be okay. But when you get into late gestation, that fetus needs every single little bit of real estate of that uterus to actually get enough nutrients and oxygen to grow to its potential. You start to get areas like this where there's detachment, where there's detachment, there's no exchange, where there's no exchange. You're pushing that uh, fetus to the point where it's actually nutritionally stressed and that's going to accelerate maturation potentially. It's going to make it a little bit smaller, and it may actually induce an abortion because I'm starving, I'm going to get kicked out of here. Yeah. It's a really big concern. It's an expensive uh, problem to have. A lot of mares get a lot of treatment for this. Um, a lot of mares get treated that probably don't have it, but the fear is if this is there and not detected and you have one abortion, it pays for a whole lot of treatment. So I think for the good of all of us, we need to get on top of this, but as you say, there's a lot of really smart people working on this. And and, and the other thing is, it's very upper underrepresented because we don't know exactly what our numbers are because it's so easy to identify. Yep. You know, not only veterinarians are able to look at these placentas and say, "Yeah, that was no cardia," but the, the farm managers that have ever seen a couple of them, they they know yep. exactly what they're looking at too. So. Th- then those don't go to the diagnostic. It's underreported. Lab. Yeah, it's yep. underreported for sure. Um, but the, but the other good piece of news was that the foals are not sick. If, if mm-hmm. they're born alive, they're okay. Now, yep. they, they might be undersized. They might have some developmental problems, but they're not likely to develop diarrhea, septic joints, all yep. those other things that we think of with a lot of our other abortions because they're not born septic. Yeah, exactly right. And they've been challenged in utero. And as long as the plaque is, uh, you know, um, is like small enough, and as long as it's like late enough that it becomes a problem, yes, they've been challenged. You may look at their blood work when they come out and they'll have signs that maybe my fibrinogen's up a little bit, maybe my white cell count's up a little bit. So they've had an inflammatory stimulus, but they in themselves are actually okay because the placenta seems to do a pretty good job at holding this at bay. So that's something to be grateful for. So moving on, another body system. Um, there was some a whole session on uh, basically equine asthma. And that's a condition that's had a number of names over many years. It's sort of all the way from sort of like COPD and heaves, inflammatory airway disease. And now the term that's been settled on is asthma. And you sort of have like mild and then you have severe. And so there's a nice talk from one of the leading researchers in the field on that. And one way to actually diagnose this is actually what's called a bronchoalveolar lavage, where what you do is you actually pass a tube down into the airways of the horse wedge it in there, flush some fluid in and out, then spin down that fluid and actually have a look at the cells that are there and the the, very, the population of cells that are there and the makeup of the cells that are there can tell you a lot about what's going on. And this was actually pretty interesting because he talked about a mild, moderate equine asthma where um, it was just like a little bit of coughing and some poor performance in young athletic horses, mm-hmm. probably what we used to call inflammatory airway disease. So it was very interesting. So upwards of 80 to 95% of thoroughbred and standardbred horses in Europe and the United States had some cytological evidence of this condition. I mean, that is huge because this is performance limiting if it's yes, bad it enough. Yes, it is. Yep. And, you know, there's more tracheal mucus in these situations as well. So it's very, very widespread condition, like the mild to moderate. And I think these horses are in a situation where they're getting challenged with dust and particulate irritants, potentially infectious agents from other horses, ventilation in the stalls may not be so good. So you're always sort of wondering, it begs the question that if we can improve the air quality in these situations, would these horses perform better with less problems? But not only were we talking about mild and moderate equine asthma, he also talked about severe equine asthma, and that's what we used to know as heaves, where the horses are sitting there at rest, elevated respiratory rate, elevated respiratory effort to the point where they actually get you know really distressed by this, flare their nostrils, start to lose weight, um, 
again, these horses are very distressed. And these horses, they tended to have quite the reaction to molds in the hay, uh, endotoxin, which is a breakdown product of certain bacteria, and various other sort of fungal um, products. And these horses had a severe reaction to that. And that actually seemed to be a genetic basis to that. And that is actually seen in particular bloodlines of, uh, of warm blood horses. They tend to have more issues with this. And so they're saying the severe equine asthma looks like it may be very similar to human asthma in that respect and that people react to those things as well. So there may be some commonality there and there may be a little bit of knowledge that can be borrowed. So that was you know, quite an interesting yeah, uh, way. Good, that, good start on Yeah, good start on that to try to actually... situation. Yeah, to try to actually see if there's information we can borrow. Yeah. Um, also with performance horses is bleeders, right? Exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage. Now, that's a major issue. And the title of this paper was uh, An Occupational Hazard of High-Speed Exercise. And this came out of Washington State. And it was a very interesting uh, presentation. And the study that was done uh, looked at the volume of blood that actually gets injected into the horse's vascular system when the spleen contracts. Because horses are a little bit unique. I mean, they're... They're such elite athletes because they can just increase their blood volume so quickly by such an amount because there's so much red cell mass held within the spleen. So the study that was done here actually looked at horses where they compensated for that increased amount of blood going in by actually removing it from the horses and then putting it back. Mm. And it was interesting to see the changes in pressure in the heart especially but also in the pulmonary vasculature. And these horses, when they actually exercise it is incredible that they can increase the circulating blood volume by up to 50 percent. that's unreal it is just unreal especially when you know how much blood volume there is there yep. to, to start with yep there's just a huge amount of blood they can put in there and the pressures in their vasculature go through the roof like um, 120 millimeters of mercury up to 160 we all start to fracture blood vessels at 80 to 100 millimeters of mercury so it looks like every horse that is competing at a high level is at risk for pulmonary hemorrhage because of the massive infusion of red cell mass from the spleen and the huge increase in pressures through the pulmonary vasculature and actually back into their heart as well. So that's why they called it an occupational hazard of yeah. high-speed exercise. And so that's interesting when you look at um, like human distance runners. A lot of them will actually have pulmonary hemorrhage as well because I think they're just exercising way. Their blood pressure is high for a sustained period of time and they start to share their blood vessels in their lungs as well. So that's rather interesting because we get very concerned about horses bleeding. A lot of effort is expended in trying to stop horses that bleed. There's a controversy over the use of Lasix, but you can actually see that potentially contracting that blood volume through the use of Lasix potentially does make sense. Now, was there any follow-up to see what, what the effect of Lasix was on those, on no, those pressures? No, that, was, that would be a, different, uh, that different, would be a study. Diff different study, but it was very interesting the way the study was done yeah. and how when the blood volume was actually decreased to match what would go in by the spleen, how that altered the pressures and put these horses in a position where they're much less likely to have a problem. Yeah, some good people at Washington State have been working on this for, for, for quite a time and have given us a lot of what we have now. Yeah, absolutely given us a lot of what we have now. And again, they're, they're almost uh, uh, comparing it to like a, a left-sided um, blood volume overload in the heart, like a diastolic failure, and that was sort of the analogy they were using and how the pressures would change. But these are normal healthy horses, but they've just gone to a physiological state which allows this sort of thing to yeah. happen because they run so fast. And that was sort of my take on the AEP anyway. So I just didn't go down there to wear a hat and go to a country bar. Yeah, you did go to the concert, though. I did go to the country bar. It yes. was um, Chris Jansen. Yes. 
I, you know, I didn't know who Chris Jansen was when I got there. Although when he starts singing, I, 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 uh, recognized a lot of his music. Um, he was great. He was a lot of fun, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a great showman. It really was good. I saw. I had to actually come back to Lexington and listen to other kinds of music to clean my, cleanse myself. No, so you're wearing the hat, though. You got to keep wearing some. But you, you got you to listen to Garth Brooks or anything. But 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 you've got to immerse yourself in the culture, man. I mean, you're all, you guys are all sitting around there with your polo shirts on and that sort of stuff. And I, I mean, look at me. I got the hat on. I got the loud shirt on. Yeah, you did. I had the cowboy boots. I had the whole nine yards and to the point yeah. where my mother did not recognize me. You know what a <laughs> sacrifice that was, but. Uh, was it? It was. Yeah, I tell you, I was. I was wounded, man. <laughs> there, there was one good study on uh, acetaminophen, and mm, there was a yes. safety study because you know we use we use tend to use butanamine. There's there's a couple others, but those are those are all selective in, uh, COX two inhibitors, and so acetaminophen's a little broader. And they, mm-hmm. they did a pretty good study, and it looks like there's some there's some good information that that maybe acetaminophen will be will be uh, safe, um, but. Is, is there more of an advantage to using it over any of the stuff we, we have now? That wasn't really answered real well, but I, th- I think it's a, it's a good start. Yeah, it is a good start. Other stuff. And we have to look at those things too. And on a similar sort of vein, I went to an excellent presentation that um, they compared flunixin um, to ferrocoxib. And, you know, the concern always is with certain non-steroidals like flinoxin, like phenylbutazone, and there's the potential for um, pathology in the bowel, like causing inflammation, especially in the right dorsal colon. Well, they actually did this lovely study where they actually gave these horses ferrocoxib over a period of time and flinoxin over a period of time, and they actually looked at the bowel thickness, and the gut actually got thicker on ferrocoxib than it did with flinoxin which was actually very interesting to me because we look on using a selective COX-2 inhibitor as being less likely to cause a problem with the GI, gastric ulceration, et cetera. And yet in this study that they did, there was actually increased bowel wall thickness with the COX-2 selective inhibitor. So I think we imperfectly understand those medications. And again, it gets back to what I was sort of saying about the CBD products potentially if we could find a use for the CBD products at a dose that actually was effective, we could potentially cut these other things down right. where we know have toxicity. And then uh, there was another CBD presentation where they talked about at the highest doses, the horses were a little bit drowsy. But somewhere you get the dose right, and it's just part of a multimodal pain control where we can use some products we know are effective for certain things, put in other products which we allow to spare those doses and still get some nice analgesia and end up with a better result. Yeah. So it's just nice to see people thinking about these things. Right. And then with the, with the CBD, I know it's being used a lot in small animal companions, especially yes. dogs for, for to have a calming effect. Yeah. And, you know, I know there's been mixed reports. Some people say it's, it's working great for them and others not so good, but it's, it's we're learning. We're yeah. Le- we're learning. Yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, I think these things have a use and I mean, all these receptors are in your system. And so if they can be used therapeutically beneficially i mean it behoves us to actually go down that road okay we'll keep the cowboy hat for next year we're back in san antonio you can wear it there uh yeah well maybe but i might get start to get recognized as that guy that talks funny wearing the cowboy hat <laughs> well you can wear the chaps anywhere you want okay but well we can have that discussion later I'm <laughs> a little bit concerned where it's going the audience <laughs> is not old enough to see this so uh, that was our aep wrap up we both had a great time in nashville y'all come back now you're here we'll see you next time <laughs>